Hello, it's that time of the week when we're feeling a little bit warm, a little bit stuffy, a little bit bored with life down here on planet Earth. Maybe we should escape and head across the universe. Strap in, it's a brand new episode of the Fun Kids Science Weekly. My name's Dan, this is where we explore the universe, galaxy, everything in between, and we learn some of those science secrets that are lurking all over the place. This week, we'll take a look at climate change. We always think how it affects us humans, but what about wildlife scattered across the planet? We'll see what's happening through the eyes of giraffes. Humans are the only ones who have the choice to change the world around them. We can choose to take care of animals like giraffes because we love them, because they're beautiful, but also because they are our allies in combating this big problem of climate change. And we'll take a trip to the smartest school in the solar system, Deep Space High, to take a look at what you can do across the galaxy if you love geography. I wish I had a favourite subject. I mean, geography's okay, but... Don't give up yet, Sam. There's as many jobs in space as there are stars in the sky. That's coming up, and I've got your questions to answer. This week, they are on how we stay safe in rockets and how your body fights off viruses... It's all coming up in a brand new Fun Kids Science Weekly. Let's kick things off with your science in the news. And NASA, the US space agency, has released a photograph of India's lunar lander on the moon's surface. You might remember a few weeks ago, India's Chandrayaan-3 lander became the first to touch down near the South Pole. Humans have never really explored that part of the moon. But this picture shows the Vikram lander as a tiny speck. In the centre of the picture, you can see a dark shadow visible against the bright halo from the sun which surrounds the vehicle. Now, at the weekend, the lander and the rover had been put to bed. Uh, As the sun began to set on the moon, it had been put into sleep mode and it will fall asleep once the solar power is depleted and the battery has been drained. Then the sun will come around, charge that battery back up so it can explore what's happening there. Also staying in space, Europe's next generation rocket has completed its first test on a launch pad in French Guyana. The Ariane 6 vehicle Uh, lit its main engine for four seconds before it shut down. Now a full test, which will last about eight minutes, is planned in about a month's time. This new vehicle replaces the Ariane 5, uh, which was the mainstay of Europe's access to space for 27 years before it retired a few months ago. This new one has cost £3.4 billion. It's more adaptable. It can fly more frequently and it will be cheaper, and it will get us to space to see what's happening. And the James Webb Space Telescope has taken a picture of the SN187A. It's a star. It's a mere 170,000 light years from us. It's in the large Magellanic Cloud, which is a galaxy near our own Milky Way galaxy. This star is one of the most famous and studied objects in the sky Uh, the star went boom in 1987 it's the nearest brightest supernova to be seen from earth in almost 400 years 
let's check in with Techno Mum now. She is our gadget genius. She knows everything about tech and engineering and how it impacts our lives. In this series, we're looking at different gadgets with Tim and Techno Mum, and we're taking a trip to the vets to take a look all about the technology behind Pet ID. Techno Mum, with the Institution of Engineering and Technology, advancing and sharing technology. Missy, our kitten has been at it again. First, she wanted to get our paws on my touchscreen computer. Now it's my favourite lunch of sausages and chips she's after. And nothing gets between me and my chips. Nothing. Stop it. Go on, get down, girl. She's on the table again, Mum. Right, you. Come on, Misty. It's time for you to get in the cat carrier. We've got to get you chipped this afternoon. <laughs> I think that's what she was hoping for. Some of my chips. Um, what sort of chips are you talking about? Microchips. The vet's going to pop a tiny chip under her skin, which will carry important information about her. It's a bit like a tag on a collar, or even a bit like a barcode. Things like her name, an address, and our phone number. So, if she's lost, they can post her back to us? That's right. Although I think they just phone us. I don't think you're allowed to post pets. There you go, Misty. I'm just putting the chip in now. Uh, doesn't that hurt? Don't worry, Tim. The microchip is about the same size as a grain of rice, and it's injected into the fleshy part of the neck. It's very unlikely she'll be able to feel it. I still don't get it. OK, the chip contains information about Misty, but the chip is now inside her neck. Mum, you said it was a bit like a tag on a collar or a barcode, but at least you can see a tag or a barcode to check it. How does anyone ever get information out again? It's buried in the cat. Well, light from a sensor has to bounce off a barcode. So you're right that you do need to see barcodes. But the chip is a tiny electrical device. Its proper name is a radio frequency ID tag, or RFID. It uses radio waves which can travel through things like bodies and cats. That's right, and it's doubly clever because it doesn't just sense radio waves, but it returns them too. Barcodes... Well, they're just stuck there. Let's check if it's working. As I swipe the reader over Misty, it gives out some electromagnetic energy. That's those radio waves in action. We can't see them, but they're definitely there. The chip inside Misty's neck has an antenna, right? When it receives this energy, it sort of wakes up. This causes it to send back its information. And here, you can see for yourself, Misty's name and address is showing on my reader. Clear as day. The reader's computer has picked up the radio waves and decoded them correctly. OK, Misty, you're free to go. Thank you. Say goodbye, Misty. Oh, look, they've got the special cat flaps here. They use RFID technology too. It's pretty clever. They make sure that Misty is the only cat that can use the flap. For every other cat, the flap is locked shut. Want to have a guess about how that works? Um, the flap sends out some radio waves, which makes the cat's chip send back its information to the reader in the flap. And does the cat flap have the computer that makes sure it's the right cat and only opens if it is? Open sesame. Exactly right. You've got it. Shall we get one for Misty? Sounds like a plan. We don't want any other cats popping in to nick my chips. Talking of chips, I'm starving. You've only just had your lunch. Honestly, bottomless pit. Well, I had to leave half of mine. Misty had her paws on them. That wouldn't normally have stopped you. Techno Mum, with the Institution of Engineering and Technology. Advancing and sharing technology. Let's answer your questions then. 
If you have anything sciencey that you want answered on this show whenever about anything from stuff tiny down here on planet Earth, maybe under the oceans, or huge things lurking across space, you can let me know and ask it as a voice note on the free Fun Kids app or at funkidslive.com. Let's get our first one this week from Alda. Hi, Dan. How are rockets made for people to be safe in? So, how do people stay safe in rockets? Well, there are loads of things that make rockets very, very dangerous. So, astronauts stay safe in them with very precise engineering that mean they are able to reach space in one piece. You see, rockets use a lot of fuel. Most of the time, get this, about 90% of a rocket's mass is just the fuel that it's needed to get up there. So when that's all burnt off, imagine how light it must be. Fuel is very flammable, so any mistake in the engineering, any accidental spark that's given off could ignite the fuel and make the whole thing go up in flames. Also, a rocket needs to be strong and light. It's bumped through the atmosphere, but it needs to stay in the air. Normally, it's made of aerospace-grade titanium and aluminium. There's a lot of forces moving the rocket in different ways. You've got gravity, thrust, drag, lift. It all pulls at them from different directions. So everything needs to be strong to stay together. So there's a lot going on, and a lot can make them very dangerous. To make sure astronauts are the safest they can be, experts take years calculating very precisely what they're made of. So astronauts have enough space to move. It needs to be light enough to get into the air, but strong enough to stand up to all those forces. Thank you so much for the question. Here's one that has been sent in as a review for the Fun Kids Science Weekly on Apple Podcasts. Thank you, Gemma, for leaving us five stars there. You want to know, how does your body fight viruses? Well, it does it in a few different ways. One is by using special white blood cells called T-cells. They kind of act like police cars for your body. They're always aware of any intruders that want to get in and cause you harm. They are scanning other cells to make sure they're meant to be there and they're not something sneaky. If they spot a virus, they get to work by breaking apart the cells in there using enzymes to kill that virus off. Also, you can get vaccines. This is if there is a new virus that your body might not know. You get a tiny amount of the new disease or something similar, a copycat of that, put into your body. And it lets your white blood cells, it lets these T cells know what the new virus is. So it can get ready to get to action with the right protein and enzymes to take care of it if it ever comes to infect you by giving you a little dose to let the police cars know here's what you're looking out for. And that, Gemma, is pretty much how your body fights viruses. Thank you so much for sending that over. If you have a science question that you want answered on the show, make sure you leave it as a voice note for me on the free Fun Kids app, and I'd love to hear you at funkidslive.com. It's the Fun Kids Science Weekly. We're talking about climate change today and how it not only affects us, but all types of creatures all around the world. Nicola Davis has written the book, Protecting the Planet, The Season of Giraffes, and joins us now. Nicola, thank you for being there. It's my pleasure. So we hear a lot about climate change and how it affects us. Why did you want to focus on how it's affecting giraffes? Because they're a really fantastic and iconic beast that I think everybody loves. Uh, And because they have a really important role in landscape. And although they've been affected by climate change, they can also be a tool which we can use to fight climate change. In the best way, I think giraffes belong to that, that category of animals that we consider 
almost an alien because they're so unique, so unlike anything else that we see around us that it makes them such a a strange creature to to follow. How much had you been following what giraffes were like before you started doing it with a view of climate change? Well, I've always absolutely adored them. And I was lucky enough to see giraffes in the wild when I visited Kenya about oh, a long time ago now, about 30 years ago. I had one very, very close to my little hire car and it walked right up to a pool next to my hire car, splayed its legs and bent right down to suck the water, to lap the water out of a rain pool right next to me. And then it lifted its head up halfway, noticed me in the car about three feet away from it, leant over, stuck its face right in through the car window, had a jolly good look at me. So I could see its big eyes and its beautiful long eyelashes and its lovely face. And then it lifted its head up to that enormous height of sort of 16, 17 feet again, and then loped off. Um, they are absolutely magical and they have been deeply affected by climate change because of increasing droughts. So that means less food, bigger distances between food. And that would be okay if it wasn't for the fact that there are now enormous amounts of human settlements and farms and roads and towns so that they were already having to travel quite a long distance to be able to find uh, to be able to find food that humans hadn't destroyed and now that distance is even greater because of climate change and there are lots of obstacles in the way but one of the things that's really amazing about giraffes and not many people know is that they are the spreaders of trees in savannah and savannah is that amazing habitat where you have beautiful seasonal grasslands that are green in the wet season and then dry and brown in the dry season and they're dotted with trees typically the acacia trees that are giraffes favorite food and as giraffes are foraging amongst the leaves with their long tongues at the end of their long necks they also spread the seeds of the acacias and acacias are really important although they're dotted about in that savanna landscape they're really important sources of nutrients and shade and cooling and as I'm sure you all know, trees of all sorts are really, really, really helpful in keeping uh, climate change under control. They lock up carbon dioxide, but they also change the local climate. They help to make rain, they help to make shade, and, and they're really important. And they're really important for human beings too, because the traditional agriculture in those dry parts of, Agri of Africa has been very dependent on the, the shade, the nutrients uh, and the forage for other domestic animals that, that trees provide. And I met a wonderful Kenyan farmer and climate change campaigner, met him virtually through his film and through messages. And he's been telling farmers in that part of Africa to plant trees for years and years and years and trying to get the message across that trees are really important for helping uh, farmers to fight climate change and to keep the temperatures under some sort of control and help to make rain and shade. Um, and of course, giraffes, because they spread the seeds of trees, are an important part of that process. So giraffes are very much our friends uh, when it comes to climate change. And they're also, of course, just absolutely iconically beautiful uh, and have been traditionally 
very valued by some societies in Africa um, who see them as a blessing on the landscape. When we think of giraffes, they seem quite docile animals that don't seem to have a care in the world. Now, and one problem of many with the climate crisis is it's making us humans very anxious, very worried about what we're doing. Can I go on holiday? Can I get in a car and go here? Is the food that I'm eating right? Is it good for the planet? This might be strange, but how do we know how animals are feeling about it? Can we tell if giraffes are particularly anxious that they're finding it much tougher to get food and water? Of course, we've got absolutely no idea really <laughs> about what goes on in the mind of another creature. And we've got little enough idea of what goes on in the mind of another human, let alone an animal with an incredibly long neck uh, that eats leaves and we haven't had a common ancestor with for several million years. But we can make a good guess uh, by their behaviour. And when animals are stressed, things like their reproductive rate goes down, they produce fewer young, they don't live so long, they may show signs of disease. And all those things are clues that animals are being stressed by what's around them. Now, of course, giraffes don't know about how the climate is regulated. They don't know about carbon dioxide being this really, really important gas that is, in, in fact, the temperature control system of our atmosphere. They don't know about that. So they can't be forward-thinking. They can't plan, not like we can. Humans are the only ones who have the choice to change the world around them. Um, we can choose to take care of animals like giraffes because we love them, because they're beautiful, but also because they are our allies in combating this big problem of climate change. You said that giraffes are very important in combating climate change because they naturally spread seeds to make new trees. How are we getting on working with them and almost using them as tools? It must be quite hard to tell a giraffe what to do and why this is important. Well, of course, it's very difficult to live with any wild, big wild animal in your backyard. We in the UK have managed to um, eliminate all the big wild animals that used to live in our country. So we don't face that problem anymore. And if you're a farmer in Africa, it's difficult to live with giraffes sometimes because they'll wander into your field and eat your crops. So in one particular part of Africa that I featured in the book, what happened was that the people there really liked giraffes. They recognised the place that they had in the landscape and the job that they were doing and protected them and didn't hunt them anymore and their numbers grew. But unfortunately now because giraffes can't wander over the enormous distances that they used to, they were confined to this one area and their numbers went up and then they started wandering into farmers' fields. So what happened was that a group of conservationists and biologists and veterinary, uh, veterinary surgeons got together and they transported the excess numbers of giraffes into an area where there hadn't been giraffes for many years because they'd been hunted and their numbers had dropped and they disappeared. So the giraffes were transported from this one place where they were just getting a bit too much into a place where they hadn't been for many, many years. And now in that new area, they're being the tree planters and they're helping to restore that habitat to what it should have been. And the book is Protecting the Planet, The Season of Giraffes. How did you go about 
making a book crammed full of fantastic illustrations by Emily Sutton that really shows this journey. How did you approach that challenge? Well, I I read a lot about how people living in Africa, farmers and pastoralists, a pastoralist is someone who lives with their wandering herd of cattle or perhaps goats or sheep. Uh, I read a lot about what they said about giraffes. And I got a sense of the kind of seasonal rhythm of that land. And of course, I've been to Kenya and Tanzania and seen that landscape for myself. And out of those real life situations and voices and stories, the rhythm of the story just seemed to grow quite naturally, because I really like to have a narrative, a story thread, rather than just a list of facts. I want my books to be page turners so that people can enjoy reading them and absorb the information almost without realising that they're absorbing it. The book is Protecting the Planet, The Season of Giraffes. It's by Nicola Davies. Thank you so much for joining us, Nicola. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Now, for this week's Dangerous Dan, the part of the show where we travel all around the universe seeking out some of the most devastating and deadly things, our adventure takes us to Southeast Asia to take a look at the Pangium edule plant. It's a tree. It towers above mangrove swamps in Indonesia and Papua New Guinea, and it makes a fruit called the football fruit. It's quite big and bulbous, as you would imagine a football fruit to be. It looks a little bit like a brown mango. Now, the fruit itself isn't too much to worry about. The flesh and the meat is used in many meals, but it's the seeds in the middle. You need to hope whichever chef is preparing this knows exactly what they're doing because if the seeds are left in, and these seeds are big beasts too, or even the leaves, it causes trouble. They are filled with poison, a toxic called hydrocyanic acid. A little munch of that can cause sleepiness, delirium, you're seeing things, you're going round the bend, and even death, which is why you can't eat any of the seeds. So any chef that is preparing this football fruit from the Pangium edule plant needs to make sure they are nowhere near your plate. And that is why that football fruit goes straight onto our dangerous stand list. Before we finish up this week, let's take a trip to the smartest school in the solar system, Deep Space High, to check in with Professor Pulsar and all the class up there. This is from our Space for All series, where we're looking about different types of careers and jobs that you can do in space exploration, because there's loads more than just getting a spacesuit on and being an astronaut. This week, we're finding out what you can do if you love learning about geography at school. Deep Space High, Space for All. All right, settle down, everyone. As you know, this term we're looking into the future. Brilliant, time travelling again. Not that sort of future, Sam. <laughs> we're looking at all the sorts of space jobs you could do when you're older. And that whatever your interests are, there's a career in space for you. But I just don't think I'm cut out to be a rocket scientist. I can't even do a Rubik's Cube. I've no clue what I want to do when I'm older. Not so fast. Space is for everyone. Not just the rocket scientists. For example, Zlot. What's your favourite subject? Um. well, we had a cool geography school trip to the free-floating planets in Orion. That was fun. 
They are these cool little planets that don't have a sun to orbit. They just drift through space on their own. Souls lot, why was it fun? Well, it was interesting to travel to a new place. Looking at maps on the way to plan our route and then swooping through the colourful gas and plasma clouds of the Horsehead Nebula, it was like flying through a rainbow. And then seeing the planets with our own eyes. So cute. And they're all different. When we got back... We drew maps of where we had been, and of the planets, too. But could that be, like, an actual job? Doing geography about space? Geography is all about studying the physical features of a planet, the surfaces, whether mountains or valleys, seas or forests, and working out why there are differences. Those differences might be due to what they're made of, or the weather, or magnetic activity, like volcanoes. No two planets are alike. Now, on Earth, people who study geography are called geographers. In space, we talk about planetary scientists. And with ten septillion planets in the observable universe, that's a lot of surfaces to study. What's a septillion? A blooming big number. Come on, computer simulation. Exoplanet 55 Cancri E. Twice as big as Earth, but eight times as heavy. That was a puzzle until planetary scientists figured out that it's largely made of diamonds and a bit of graphite. Quite a different landscape, eh? Okay, what about this one? Computer sim GJ1214B. It's boiling here, and this mist, I can't see a thing. This has been described as like no planet we know of. It's mostly composed of water with a thick, steamy atmosphere. And if you want to get hotter, Sam, computer sim WASP-12B. There's fire everywhere. Not sure I like it. This is the hottest exoplanet that's ever been discovered. It's a toasty 2,250 degrees Celsius. It's so hot because it's only 2 million miles from its sun. OK, back to class. So, as you can see, surface landscapes can be hugely different from planet to planet for a host of reasons. And planetary scientists study them carefully to find the reasons why. So... No rocket science needed. (laughs) Like I've said, space isn't just for rocket scientists and astrophysicists, even though they are important. If we want to visit new planets, we need experts who have the skills to study them and give us information about what they're made from and how they were formed. People who'll study a planet's gravity and magnetic fields and the geological processes that have changed it over millions, even billions of years. Geographers and geologists, planetary scientists... Maybe you'll be one of them's lot. I could make maps so people don't get lost. Or could find the best places to put buildings or land spacecraft. Exactly. I wish I had a favourite subject. I mean, geography's okay, but... Don't give up yet, Sam. There's as many jobs in space as there are stars in the sky. (coughs) Quark, did you have to? Although I think one quark is quite enough. Deep Space High, space for all. With support from the UK Space Agency. Find out more at funkislive.com slash space. 
more from Deep Space High and our Space for All series next week on the show. If you've enjoyed that, you can hear more of it and loads more brilliant podcasts that we do on Google, Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your shows. They're on the free Fun Kids app and at funkidslive.com too. And Fun Kids, we're our children's radio station from the UK. Listen all over the country on your DAB digital radio on that free Fun Kids app. And if you've got a smart speaker, wake up and say play Fun Kids and I'll see you next week. <laughs>